we'd like to thank you, our valued listeners, for your interest and support over the past 18-odd months. What was initially FX Radio has grown exponentially to include not just our podcasts in FX Medicine Podcast Central on iTunes, but we'd like to also introduce the recently launched FX Medicine website. This is our reservoir of resources, research and educational content for complementary medicine. Come and be a part of the community at fxmedicine.com.au. FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook, and joining me on the line today is Moira Bradfield. She has 14 years' experience working as a naturopath, both in Australia and overseas, having graduated with a Bachelor of Naturopathy from Southern Cross Uni in 2001. Moira has worked as a naturopath in a variety of settings and with a wide range of health conditions and disease states. In the pursuit of blending naturopathic medicine with oriental modalities, Moira completed a diploma in traditional Thai massage in 2004, and then in 2010 completed a master's degree in acupuncture through Southern Cross University, and now incorporates effective oriental protocols into her naturopathic practice. She's traveled to the United Kingdom, Thailand, and China as part of her clinical training. And Moira, um, she has lectured in naturopathy both overseas and in Australia in nutrition pharmacology and pathology and she is now currently senior lecturer at nutrition at the Endeavour College of Natural Health on the Gold Coast, a recently appointed physician. Congratulations Moira and welcome. Thank you very much, thanks for having me. Moira, today we're going to be talking about something that's really interesting and that's the use of complementary medicine or integrative medicine with particularly frustrating and indeed incurable um, eye conditions. So I want to go back first. You're a clinician and a lecturer in naturopathy, but tell me about your history. How did it all eventuate? How did you develop the interest for natural medicine? I think when I look back at that, I don't think I had a choice. Um, I remember from a very young age being interested in natural health. And uh, certainly throughout high school, when I had the choice to do things like work experience, I ended up in apothecaries or health food shops. Um, and that's really where I sort of got my interest about what this industry really was rather mm. than just an ideal of what I thought it was. So then when I graduated high school, um, for me, there was really, well, in our family, it didn't seem to be anything other than university was the next logical step. So I looked for a university that offered a degree in naturopathy, which is um, ideally where I wanted to end up. And I came across Southern Cross University, which I believe at that time was one of the only ones offering it at that level. So I packed my little bags from Tasmania and moved to Lismore in northern New South Wales and really have been up this end of the world ever since and practicing um, naturopathy. But you're also a Chinese medicine practitioner, a profession blessed with APRA accreditation. That's the Australian Health Practitioners Registration Association. So tell me about how your interest began um, with acupuncture and how that progressed from naturopathy. So I found myself probably, when did I start that, 2008. So I'd been working in naturopathy for eight or nine years Mm. by that stage. And certainly getting clinical success and working in a lot of different settings and I travelled with it and come back to Australia. And I personally had a shoulder that just wasn't responding to anything that I was throwing at it. And so I wandered down behind um, the shop I was working in at the time and hopped on the acupuncturist table there. And in one session, I found that I had found relief for a shoulder that I had been treating for probably six months. And I literally got off that table and went, wow, you can do that with a needle. Yeah, I want to do that. And so I went and found out who was offering acupuncture at that point as a postgrad. I didn't really fancy going back as an undergrad. Um, and again, Southern Cross University came up on my radar for that. So I enrolled myself and um, then went through their program and came out the other side. And at that time, um, registration was certainly on the discussion board, but it wasn't a given. Mm. And the course that I went into 
wasn't a given that it was going to receive accreditation. Uh-huh. Um, but I went into it anyway, knowing that this was really a modality that I needed to have. It offered for me not just you know better outcomes, but it also brought into practice more of an energetic modality. And it's something that I think in my clinical practice I had lost as I'd moved more towards science and more towards evidence-based. Mm. And it's something I wanted to recapture. So I went for it. And then certainly when we got registration, there was a little bit of a process as there was for many practitioners out there who had either graduated before and didn't hold bachelor's degrees or they, their schools had disappeared and so there wasn't people to advocate on their behalf about the validity of their training. And so I went through the accreditation process for registration where I had to supply clinical case studies and be judged to be um, competent by the board. Yeah. And thankfully made that through that process and then gained uh, for registration at the end of that. Um, and I've got to say, you know, you were blessed with being taught by um, a great lady, um, Viv Griffiths down in, in Ballina area. Um, and I think I think you already had it, but I think she, being taught by her, she would have definitely engendered you to how you think really clinically, but you also incorporate that holistic treatment. And that's one of the things I really respect about you. You've all, you've, you're very clinical, but you bring it back to this naturopathic uh, philosophy. Mm, thank you. I think, yeah, definitely Viv helped um, develop that in us as practitioners. But there's also, I mean, there's a number of people, as with everybody, that have sort of shaped who they are as a practitioner today. As part of that acupuncture training, we were required to do um, clinical hours. So I found myself and mentor and um, completed a total of 600 hours outside of the university to make up my university training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of time under a mentor and certainly that was, again, part of that training and, and part of that clinical integration as well. And then have, having to integrate that with my naturopathy, which was actually one of the bigger barriers, is how do I find one paradigm and fit it into another and, you know, because I didn't want to lose my naturopathy, I wanted to integrate acupuncture into it. Mm. And and that became a big challenge as well. And one I think I'm still struggling with, <laughs> um, that I'm getting better at um, assimilating the two together. Because you do TCM as well, though, I mean, that's that's a hugely, hugely complex uh, system of medicine. So do you have real challenges ratifying that with, say, Western naturopathy? And I'm not denigrating that as being more simplistic. I'm just saying TCM seems to be extremely complex. At times, but though I, I look at it like I do any, you know, modality or paradigm, I think there's value in any of them. Yeah. And if you can, I look at it, I have a visual image that I often will see in my head and it's just another transparency that I place over the top. So it's still a human body. And the knowledge that each paradigm has to offer is still valid knowledge and it, it has truth in it. And so I just layer it over the top and then find the, the commonalities that I can then consolidate that in my being, I guess. So, yeah. you know, when we look at TCM and everything has slightly different language and um, it still has, you know, an equal when we look at it in naturopathic language. It's just about finding common language between the two yeah. and then working that out. So that's something, I guess, if you asked me to explain that, I possibly would have trouble doing that. <laughs> um, and I've sat down many times to write a book on how you do that, and so far it hasn't eventuated. <laughs> Page one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, I do think that you know you, the two can be reconciled, just like you can reconcile it with mainstream allopathic medical medicine and the model that it has to offer. Hmm. And there's always going to be barriers, and sometimes the barrier is that I just have to let go that there's a barrier there and accept it and move on. And sometimes the barrier can be, you know, broken down and, and repurposed, I guess, or thought about in a different way. But you've recently uh, been appointed as Senior Lecturer in Nutrition. Um, and I, I truly congrat- congratulate you and indeed your students, because I know that they'll definitely benefit from this. But tell me about how that evolved, because you, you were a, a sessional lecturer for some time. I was, yeah. Um, when I first came back to Australia I, 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 when I was overseas to start with in the UK, I mm. started lecturing and for me that was a big jump because I certainly wasn't somebody I ever thought would be standing up in front of people and talking. Um, and then I came back to Australia and I found work with Endeavour College and as a sessional lecturer. And at that time it just happened to be, excuse me, it happened to be that I was thrown into subjects that were more nutritional in foundation than they were herbal. 
And I went into Endeavour being a very big advocate of herbal medicine. Um, but having spent a lot of time there, and I'm very grateful for the time that I've spent there as a sessional lecturer, I have become more of a nutritionist in my naturopathic knowledge than I am a herbalist okay. these days. And, and and I guess the next logical step was that I have a big passion for the nutrition because it's essentially core if we look at it as a food and what we put into our body. Yes. That's something we do on a daily basis. We've got to get it right. <laughs> Um, and so to take that and to then expand it and go into nutraceuticals and to go into, you know, specialized interventions for people, um, that's something that really got me going, I guess, and mm. I really am passionate about that. And so then when the position of senior lecturer for nutrition came up, I put my hand up and I'm very happy that I've got the position. It's a little bit daunting. I know there's a lot of work to be done, um, but hopefully we're going to come out the other end with some you know, better nutrition students coming through and some improved um, aspects of teaching, if there's possible, that we can do that. And hopefully I can be a part of that. Well, I think that's an absolute given that you'll get better nutrition students coming out. And I, I, I applaud Endeavour College's choice. <laughs> well done, Endeavour. <laughs> but you also now work uh, in a unique integrative clinic um, utilising both acupuncture and naturopathy, and it's for... Degenerative eye disorders, is that right? Yeah, it is. Tell yeah. me more about this. This is really interesting. And I've I've got to say, like, you know, you you, you use acupuncture, is that right, yeah. for the eye disorders? We use, um, it's a, well, it's an integrative eye clinic, so it's a combination of acupuncture with naturopathic and nutritional services. Um, and, and integrating that, obviously, with mainstream medical as well. These aren't necessarily patients that we can manage on our own or want to manage on our own, depending on the severity of their disorder. Right. So it's a combination of all three. What does it take? What, like, forgive me. What sort of conditions do you treat, do you see? Okay. So we, I mean, as an integrative eye clinic, we're looking for, well, we're offering services for people who suffer from a really wide variety of eye conditions. So mm. it, they can be conditions that are um, from retinal and degenerative diseases, so anything from age-related macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa is an area where we seem to have a lot of patients coming through, um, some congenital and other genetic disorders, Stargardt, which is really an early-onset macular degeneration, um, certainly glaucomas, diabetic retinopathies, um, people who are recovering from things like retinal detachment or occlusion. And then there's a lot in what we're finding in ophthalmology that um, there's a lot of unknown as well. And mm -hmm. there are you know, disorders of atrophy of the optic nerve or inflammation of the optic nerve with really no specific associated pathology that they can identify. So we also can look at that within our treatment um, care package as well. And then you've got a lot of the sort of the everyday um, or other eye conditions. So things like dry eye, which is unfortunately increasingly mm, common. Mm. Um, <laughs> some of the things that we see in pediatrics or drooping eyes or lazy eyes, nystigmus. Um, there's also things, people who are recovering from injury or surgery associated with their eyes, um, cataracts, short vision, wow. long visions and myopias, stigmatisms. Um, that sort of thing. So really, it's quite a broad application. It's a model that can be taken into a lot of different eye diseases. Yeah. Um, and then getting down to base principles, really, you can offer um, some sort of intervention for these people um, to improve their eyesight or to retain eyesight for longer, if possible. I've got to, I've got to say though, the the thought of using acupuncture just fills me with these horrific images of torture. But, you know, but what are we talking about here as a treatment? Because you don't actually treat the or the eye, around the eye? Tell me how the service works. What happens? So certainly that's a really common question is, am I going to have acupuncture put into my eye? And the answer to that is no. <laughs> so in the integrative service, um, in this particular service, I'm the naturopath. So I offer the naturopathic side of care and mm -hmm. the nutritional side of care. Yep. And then I have a, a very esteemed colleague, Naomi, who offers the acupuncture side of care. Um, but certainly... In that setting, there's never a needle that goes into your eye. Um, and when we look at the acupuncture and the philosophy behind that, we, we address eye disease at both a local and a systemic level. So in terms of acupuncture, the local treatment certainly might um, mean that there are needles placed around the area of the eye or the orbit um, and on the face. Mm -hmm. And then systemically, when we're looking at you know balancing meridians and G-flow and 
moving stagnation or building blood or whatever it is in the TCM sense, um, then there are needles that are placed on other parts of the body, the arms, the legs, the abdomen. So, yeah, there's never needles in your eye, but they certainly are around them. Um, and there's different types of acupuncture that is incorporated into our service as well. So there is um, what they call microacupuncture, which you know, encompasses looking at microsystems, so hands and the feet, for example, as yeah. reflections of the whole body. Mm. Um, and then the local treatment I explained, which is around the eyes, and then certainly looking at constitutional or systemic treatment and using forms of acupuncture like Japanese acupuncture, which is a very gentle form of acupuncture using much finer needles. So it tends to be a little bit less intrusive in that sense. So that's the acupuncture service, but your responsibility is to do with naturopathic service. Tell me what you do. Okay, so within that, um, because it's a program that people come in, so they will come in, they have assessment with a nurse practitioner, um, then they receive intensive acupuncture over a one- or two-week period, and in that, they will have a um, an appointment with me as a naturopath. And so I've already sent off some paperwork so that I have some idea about what's going on on a holistic level and then we sit down and pretty much run a naturopathic consultation like I would any other one. I'm still looking for uh, what are the drivers of this particular disorder, why has this happened in this person and, you know, the uniqueness of the person which gives me insight then into treatment. So it might be looking for the causes of oxidative stress or looking for, um, you know, sort of immune system imbalances, looking for possible allergies looking at diet and lifestyle and um, life stresses in general and pulling together some sort of treatment protocol that addresses that as well as addressing, again, the local stuff, which is the eye, because there's certainly a lot of information and nutraceuticals out there and herbal medicine out there that are eye-specific. And if I just put people on eye-specific protocols, they certainly would see improvement, but the sustainability of that improvement is perhaps questionable. Mm. So I'm looking to find something that's really going to support them underneath and improve general well-being anyway. I mean, certainly if you can walk away from that with a better sense of health, your body's ability to be able to repair itself, to have the resources to meet stresses as they come into the body is going to be improved. So we look at a lot of lifestyle we look at a lot of dietary advice, um, and certainly I'm aware. I'm sure you're aware about the the sad aspect of the Australian diet. Yes. Currently, <laughs> less than six percent of people are eating the required amount of fruit and vegetables. Um, and so, you know, the why of that as well. What are the barriers that we have in place for people to not be able to meet something as simple as eating fruit and vegetables yeah. on a daily basis? Yeah. And so we have discussions about that. You know, what do you do? What's your time? Are you busy? Do you have time to prepare food? If you don't, what can we do that will make you have good intake of food and nutrients on a daily basis but still accommodate for the fact that you're a mother or you know a working individual that leaves the house at 7 and gets home at 7 o'clock at night? So it's a lot of fact-finding and problem-solving on a very um, you know personal level there. And I think that's the difference in sitting down with someone rather than self-prescribing a lot of these eye-based, you know, formulas that are out there, which, yeah. as I said, are, you know, are based in evidence, but they don't take into account the individual and the barriers that they have. Mm. Uh, well, indeed. Um, I think that's the concept of natural medicine, which we've got to retain, is that if you just want to do a targeted therapy for the dysfunctional organ, you're going to be sadly disappointed if you're looking at natural medicine to get long-standing results from that because we're not a drug. We're not a blocker or an upregulator. We're a, a supporter, a nourisher, that sort of thing. So I think with herbs and nutrients, you can use some sort of specific type things, but if you don't look at the holistic approach, you're just going to be let down, I think, in the in the long run. Certainly. I mean, and, the, and I think that's what evidence-based practice has given us mm. is that we have all this beautiful information about what this does in specific disorders, but it's it has a tendency then for particularly new practitioners to pick that up and go, oh, I only need to do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> and to forget the underpinning philosophy and to look at what the vital force is doing and, and what else is going on for this individual that is causing this to be an issue. Yeah. Because certainly for these eye disorders, yes, they've identified genes, but then we look at the epigenetic issue. Why is that expressing itself? 
in this person at this point and it hasn't in the other person who isn't eating a good diet and is doing all the wrong things as well. So, you know, we need to look at that on a whole and really come to a place where we get back to our roots a little bit and still mm. continue to incorporate that and, you know, understand the systems and how they interact in that body to bring about this issue because the eye is obviously part of a whole body. It's oh. not just the eye. Absolutely. So so what sort of herbs, nutrients, nutraceuticals and indeed dietary advice do you use for a more specific type um, approach and then the same for the more generalised background? So, I mean, it does differ depending on what eye condition you're looking at and certainly when we're going and looking at in, um, local treatments and research-based treatments, for a lot of eye disease, we're still at the stage of rat studies. Yeah. There have been pilot studies moving into humans, um, and the evidence is promising in some areas and conclusive in others. So I go into nutritional prescription on a local level with some caution for some people. Others, it's very evidence-based. So you take something like macular degeneration, for example. There's some quite significant trials that have gone on looking at um, nutrients in those particular instances. And then other stuff, I'm looking more about the issue. I and mean, when we look at the the eye, for example, its biggest issue is oxidation because it has light that passes through it. So when we're looking at the retina and the amount of photon energy that's taken in there and the amount of blue light that's coming in, which is particularly heightened in today's society because we spend so much time staring at screens, um, that's an oxidation issue. So sometimes I go... Local but general in terms, we're looking at oxidation in a very general sense. So we're looking at things like glutathione or glutathione precursors, depending mm. upon the individual. And then we can get specific because we know that the um, retinal pigment epithelial, which is pigmented, um, has beta carotenes or and carotenes that make up that pigment. So particularly things like lutein, zeaxanthin, and more recently astaxanthin are known to have a role in protecting that pigment and making it function more efficiently. So we can certainly intervene there on that level with things like lutein and zeaxanthin to stop the loss of peripheral visual fields or to protect the rods um, in that area. And then when we get down to the macula and the fovea side of it, looking at how they can protect the cones as well or prolong the life of those. So it's, again, if you've ever had me as a lecturer, you get that I talk a lot about resources. Yeah. And it's about do I have the resources to meet what I'm doing to my eye. So if we don't have resources, we have issues. Um, and so it's about supplying those. So certainly those are the well-known carotenes that we need in that area, so let's put them in there. Let's give lutein, um, you know, around about, well, depending on what research you're looking at, 12 milligrams is sort of the conservative midline, 30 milligrams in some research. Um, you know, let's put that in there at that level. And then let's look at zeaxanthin, which is needed at a much lower dose, so mm. around about 2 to 6 milligrams, again, depending upon research. But those are sort of non-negotiables for me in most eye disorders because we're dealing with that retina and that's what that retina needs. Yep. Then I would look at things like the astaxanthin I mentioned. I mean, there's a lot of really exciting research coming through on astaxanthin um, for, you know, not very long periods of time to see improvement in um, or a slowing down in the destruction of cells, I guess, because a lot of what we're seeing is degenerative. So it's the destruction of cells and the destruction of cells and the why is oxidative, but there's a lot of other genetic stuff and cell signaling mishaps that are going on. And they can see that astaxanthin will change how blood is delivered, for example, to that particular um, epithelium and therefore will supply you know, nutrients for cells so that their mitochondria can perform efficiently and to go through that. So you're looking at that type of level of intervention with astaxanthin. I'll also tend to employ I'm sort of a new convert to um, krill oil. Yep. I love it. Um, and I love it in, in eyes because it not only gives you um, the omega-3s, of which there is research for omega-3s, but granted in a official form, mm. um, but it's supplying an amount of astaxanthin of its own accord as well. So yeah. you're getting a pigmented fat and you're getting it in a phospholipid form, which we know, you know, there's certainly, we're dealing with very delicate cellular structures and phospholipids are integral to that. 
And we're getting a little bit of choline, which I think if you're going to support ah, um, <laughs> nervous system function, acetylcholine production, that's also a really good thing to be looking at as well. well. I was going to ask about um, optic nerve damage. Do you ever employ phosphatidylserine? You've, you've spoken about the choline, so these these phosphatidyl type groups. Um, in and indeed looking at the gut in balancing out an inflammatory process that might be going on? So certainly the gut is the core of a lot of my treatments. So we're looking to um, balance the immune, the absorption, you know, whatever's going on with an endotoxic hyperpermeable sort of loading coming in and yep. affecting the liver mm-hmm. um, because the liver is also another big part of this equation, both on a TCM level but also a pathology level when we're looking at oxidative stress. Um, so I certainly will look at that as a core intervention, which is general gut health yep. and eliminating any triggers. And then certainly when we're looking at optic nerve and the neuropathies or the damage that can occur, because that's not, once you start getting damage there, that's not necessarily retrievable at all. No. I mean, what we're doing with degenerative eye disease and we're able to see some improvement or and some remarkable improvements at some stages of eyesight is not because we're curing anything. It's because we're what's going on with the therapy, both acupuncture and nutrition, is that there are actually cells that are either sleeper cells that are sitting on the periphery and they're not functioning at peak capacity. But if you can revitalize them, they come back. So a rescue effect. Pardon? A rescue effect. A rescue effect, essentially, yeah. So there's been some research surrounding that um, and recent research with Andy Rosenfarb, who's one of the pioneers of this type of integrative treatment in the US, mm. he's done a pilot study for acupuncture and looking at in retinitis pigmentosa how that actually deals with his sort of sleeper cells and you know improves acuity. Um, so that's the, what we're directing our treatment at. Uh, when we're looking at optic nerve loss. That doesn't happen necessarily. You know, you can't. Once you've started to damage that optic nerve, the damage in some senses is irreplaceable. Yeah. Um, and, and so certainly, you know, supply nerve nutrients, my gosh, do it. Um, and certainly those phosphatidyls, serines, cholines, lipids are integral to any sort of nerve health as are things like your B vitamins and, you know, that type of thing. Um, but for me, it's more about why is that optic nerve doing what it's doing? Yeah. What's going on with blood flow? What's going on with oxidative stress? What's going on with pressures in the eye if we're looking at a glaucoma-induced one? Um, why have we got pressures in the eye in terms of is it a, you know, debris sort of thing with the trabecular network, increasing stresses or what's going on there that we can take the pressure off so that we can rescue what's hmm. going on there. And um, what about herbs? What sort of herbs do you employ? Um, well, the way that the current clinic is set up, my my use of herbs is at this point limited to what I'm able to get in tablet form. And the reason for that is that we see patients from all around Australia and sometimes outside of Australia in terms of Indonesia and Malaysia. And so liquid herbs for me really are not an option anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they they create a barrier in yeah. themselves, in that yeah. you know, how do I post that to the other side of the world, for example? So, I tend to go with um, products that are accessible, you know, in Australia if they're an Australian product and they can order it to their door, or if they're overseas, we work with what they can access from over there as well. So, that aspect of herbal medicine, and certainly on a systemic level, I tend to not do as much of. But certainly, when we're looking at herbs in the eye. Um, things like saffron, which again is one of the, I say newer, it's probably been 10 years that it's been <laughs> out there now, but um, you know, it seems to be gaining some popularity as a herb um, and using it for the eye. So we know that it has applications in the cardiovascular system, in the neurological system, but it also has quite specialised stuff going on in my studies. They've seen in retinitis pigmentosa that it can help protect the photoreceptors from damage and loss. Um, and it's the same in age-related macular degeneration that actually improves the central vision. So we're dealing there with the, the macula and the favea and their density of cones, but it's actually seeing some benefit in as well. Oh, okay. And what I do like about saffron is that it, you know, it has these other system-based interactions. Yep. So if I have somebody that I think needs you know, the neurological aspect of saffron and they have an eye disorder, it's a perfect choice. 
So this, yeah, so this is where I was going to sort of go. Um, um, Jerome Sarah is very interested in saffron. Indeed, um, Associate Professor Leslie Braun is very interested in the research going on with saffron as well for um, anxiety and um, depression. Do you find that there's a high correlation when people are acutely anxious and a deterioration in, let's say, transient deterioration in eye function? Definitely. I mean, not just with anxiety, but acute stress in general. So any of that catecholamine-driven stuff. I think that, um, you know, we do have people that have been cruising along for 20 years, say, with their retinitis pigmentosa, which is a very slow sort of onset um, degeneration, and then all of a sudden they experience accelerated vision loss, which is the reason why they've come into the clinic for intervention. Um, certainly you need to consider in that, is this an acute situation that needs to be dealt with acutely by allopathic medicine? Um, but if it's not, if it's just a continuation on not their pathology, but it's accelerated, certainly you know stresses and emotional stresses are a big part of that need to be considered and evaluated. And then looking outside of emotional stresses, environmental stresses, I mean, what's changed in their environment? Did mm. they suddenly move somewhere or have they done something? Or you know, So on that aspect, my answer to that would be yes. I think it's a fantastic thing to consider and it would be the perfect curve for those people because it is, you know, addressing those multi-areas. It's not just a, you know, a dart in, in one area. It's looking at multi-system interaction and for that it's, you know, it's got it all covered. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, our dietary things or, you know, you might want to get them in a supplement, but looking at our diet, things like blueberries, um, you know, what is it, a dollar a punnet right now in colds. Do you find it easy to get patients to, if they're not using them, to use these as a dietary intervention? Yeah, yes and no. <laughs> um, I think... You know, it's very easy to tell patients to do things, but the the action is often harder mm. than the reality of it. And certainly having a motivating factor like the loss of your vision is going to be a big motivating factor. And so there is a huge percentage of our clientele that are highly motivated and will take on whatever you say 100%, which is fantastic. And then the other percentage of people... The barriers are big, you know, and, and it can be a variety of things. They might be very young and understandably being very young, want to do things like young people do, and they're often highly oxidative things that they want to do, um, or, you know, that they're caught up in careers and things like that. But certainly uh, putting small things like that into somebody's life are easy to do. You know, I would like to think that eating the right amount of vegetables in a day is an easy thing to do. Mm. But when I look at my own life, sometimes I fail as well. <laughs> so I can understand that on a personal level how how hard that can be for many people. So um, there's lots of things that we can do to support people to incorporate those sort of dietary changes. So certainly I spend a lot of time getting recipes together for people and, as I said, working out what their barriers are, what their lifestyle is and how we fit this in. In the integrative clinic that we run, there's the added complexity about the diet that I prescribe has to align with their oriental diagnosis. Ah, um, which okay. can sometimes for you know bring up some things as well because there are people that are doing what they perceive to be the right thing and there's certainly value in it, which is you know let's go raw, let's go green smoothies, and I'll chuck it in that way all day every day, which from an oriental perspective is a very cold diet, and a lot of these people need nourishing and warming. And so you have to shift yeah. that mentality as well because yeah. what they're doing is good, but it just needs to be tweaked a little bit. Yeah. And, and that's something we need to discuss. You know, how do we incorporate slow cooking into your life? And what can we do with the overall thermal quality of a meal to make it warmer rather than cooler so that your digestion can deal with it easier rather than being challenged by it? Um, so that's something that um, one of the things I mentioned earlier I struggled with. That's something initially I struggled with. I'm getting much better at it. Um, but it's a hard thing to compromise because the, the nutritional and the oriental are completely polarized on some aspects of yeah. that. You know, it's very easy to go have raw smoothies and then we'll have salads three times a day and we'll eat fish and it will be fantastic. Mm. And then the oriental is saying, no, you need more red meat. 
um, you need more fluid and you need more sort of spice. And yes, you need vegetable, but when you have vegetable, it needs to be cooked, yep. you know, and so that's something that we have to come up with. But most people tend to be okay with that. And certainly once you start eating a diet that's aligned with the oriental diagnosis, because it's aligned with your constitution, you tend to feel better much quicker. And I think the proof is in the pudding for people with that as well, and that, yep. that will then drive compliance for them. So do you, do you find do you um, incorporate you know tips like let's say we, you know we're talking about eye disorders we're talking about people that may um, have a degree of um, pre-diabetes let's say or a risk of diabetes so they've got the sweet tooth um, and then it might be something like instituting not our canned vinegarized pickled beetroot but getting raw beetroots and baking them. Mm-hmm. You know that because the sweetness comes out, it concentrates. They're, they're gorgeous, and even things like heated berries with I'm okay. I'm going to put it in the ice cream, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know heated berries can be really nourishing. They're beautiful and they're softer. And do you yeah, find that that sometimes it's a flipping mentality of what we think a food should present like? Definitely, and and, and along those lines, it's sometimes finding an analog of what they're already doing but finding an analogue that's healthier. So, you know, for you, I would even say, let's take out that ice cream and put some yogurt on that. <laughs> yes, fine. <laughs> you know, so that, <laughs> so that you've improved it one step more. I mean, you know, and so finding that, I have a whole sheet that I give a lot of people, which are sweet treats, you know, yeah. and, and they're how do I create something that looks like what I want to have, but without all of that sugar and without all of that, you know, added refined white in there um, so that we can come up with something that's going to, if you're going to blow out and have a sweet, make sure it has micronutrients. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I'm not saying everyone has to be a Puritan and live like this day by day. It's a resource game. Just yeah. make sure you're winning that resource game yeah, that's by a trick, putting it? it in whenever you can. Yeah, make something bad less bad. Yeah, <laughs> so, so I can have passion fruit flavoured Greek ice cream, a uh, Greek yogurt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moira, you spoke before about the holistic treatment of these people with eye disorders, and and indeed that may incorporate the gut and the liver. And one of the symptoms, if you like, that I remember is the red eyes always came up, and and you sort of tagged on liver treatment with that. So, what sort of herbs and nutrients do you look at when you're um, looking at both treating the eye? and also the liver? So, I mean, again, if we're looking at a systemic sort of intervention, um, I would be looking at a couple of different avenues. One is what's going on with the liver. If it's overburdened, why is it overburdened? And in the functional sense, not the disease sense. So, you know, what's going on with our functionalization or our conjugation reactions in the liver that is causing an imbalance? Mm -hmm. And is that coming from the gut? Or is that coming from some sort of other environmental exposure um, presently or in the past? Or is that something that's more endogenous um, with possibly a genetic you know, issue in terms of methylation or something along those lines? So I, I guess I assess it from that sense. And, I mean, I will fall to the things that are commonly employed for liver support. So certainly semerosicil might be one of those things that we look at for just general um, liver support and detoxification. Um, I'm a big fan, again, of um, turmeric or curcumin and looking at that and certainly its ability to be able to balance out functionalization and conjugation on a liver sense is is really important. And for me, there's also some research about um, it's early research, but research about curcumin in eye and retinal degenerative disorders. So they're looking at that and, and they're seeing, again, because of its ability to affect inflammation in the body, that it can be a bit of a rescuer as mm, well. Mm. So that's something that I would commonly employ. And I tend to employ that on a dietary and supplemental basis, depending upon what's going on for that person and what stage they're at with their liver and whether I assess that to be a big impact on there or whether it's sort of more of a peripheral thing for them or not. Um, and then looking at that gut repair to stop that sort of endotoxic loading coming through and to, you know, sort of clean up and balance out those phases as well. Mm-hmm. And then looking at the, the cofactors that we need to be able to perform those, you know, really important detoxification steps. So certainly I mentioned before um, glutathione and its precursors, so N-acetylcysteine, um, looking at things like selenium, you know, other minerals like zinc. And then, again, coming back, if I was considering 
other individual herbs and I was able to find them in an appropriate way for people to go home with, certainly Shizandra, which is your you know your herbal five paste. So in terms of aligning that with an oriental protocol, it's a little bit easier to do because mm. it has that real grounding in um, TCM. Um, even looking at other herbs, I mean, you still have your dandelions and your globe artichokes and even looking at buplurum again for that sort of thing. So there's always a, an emphasis on the liver from a Western and naturopathic sense. From the Oriental perspective, they tend to think more about the liver in terms of its ability to, um, or the role that it plays with blood flow mm. um, and how that relates back to the eyes. I mean, again, in TCM, the liver and the eyes are, are related. And the blood flow situation, if we're seeing a reduction in blood flow and a reduction in the delivery of any of these nutrients to the eye, the eye's got to suffer from that. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with patient expectations, though, in a service that offers you know, an intervention for seemingly incurable conditions? That's a really good question. Um, it starts from before we even see these people. So certainly there is a screening that goes on prior to people taking up the service. And the screening is aimed at whether the person is actually even a candidate for the service. So, And that's based on um, what sort of interventions they've had mm. previously because the more medical or surgical interventions that you've had, um, the less likely, and it's not impossible, but the less likely you're going to have the extreme outcomes that we sometimes see. Um, so that sort of consideration comes into it as well, as does you know the want of that person to initiate change. I mean, people come into this with a fair amount of skepticism as well, and understandably so, um, having been told that they've got a degenerative eye disease for which nothing can be done. Um, so the skepticism is also something that can be a huge barrier um, but needs to be assessed from the outset as well. So we have uh, protocols in place to screen people. And then when we see people, it's um, about you know discussing and being open and that we're not claiming to offer cure. We're claiming to offer you know an intervention that has certainly evidence behind it that it can rescue cells. It's not you know building new cells, it's not doing anything miraculous in terms of cure, it's just working with what the body's already got and optimising the body's ability to be able to do what it needs to do on a homeostatic level better. So we have very um, candid conversations with people about that. Um, It's it's even more evident when we've had a few really young paediatric patients and, you know, who have obviously not reached their milestones in terms of um, vision. And so from there, there's not even necessarily a diagnosis in play. The unknown is that anything could happen to this child's vision, good or bad, from that point in time. And that we're offering, you know, again, an intervention that there's not really a measurable outcome to actually be had from that type of intervention other than the fact that the child or the parents see improvement. Um, So that's one aspect of that. The other is what we do is that prior to coming to us, and if you've been screened as being a successful, uh, possibly a successful candidate for the service, is that you need to go and see your specialist and have visual testing done. Uh, And so that gives us a base mark or a benchmark to go from. And then at the end of the, um, the stay with us, you go back home and then you have testing done again. So within the clinic, um, the clinic setting, we run um, functional testing, so things like ambler grids and you know visual um, acuity in terms of reading lines, etc. And that's measured before and after. And you'll see, you know, that sort of um, subjective improvement in that level within that clinical setting. But it's the going home and having you know a tomography done on your eye and yep. seeing a change in the um, epithelial layer or some other change like that, that the visual field improves quite significantly, which we've had happen a few times, um, that really helps to manage that. Because, I mean, I know myself as a patient, I'm a skeptic, <laughs> excuse me, um, and I can have unreal or, you know, lower than normal expectations as well, and that all needs to be taken into account. And the only person that can really help with that is the practitioner, and luckily for us, we have there's a few of us who can sit down and have those discussions with the patient about it. So it's coming from a few different areas. Yeah. What sort of protocols do you have in place for high-risk patients, though? So with high-risk patients, um, again, it's that before and after testing. Hmm. We do have a, a number of, well, one really good um, 
professional on the coast who tends to do a lot of testing for us, which is fantastic. Mm. And then like any modality, um, if you're dealing in a specialty, you need to know what the alarm symptoms for yeah. that specialty are. Yeah. You know, you need to know that if someone's sitting there and they're all of a sudden they're complaining of more floaters than they had 10 minutes ago, that that's a significant alarm symptom when you're dealing with the eye. Or if the visual field, you know, is deteriorated much quicker or accelerated at one point, or there's some sort of change that is not a positive at all. Um, those are things that will, are for me, are big alarm symptoms and, you know, can mean anything from retinal detachment to macular edema and that they need to be referred and assessed. And it's not to say that the intervention that we're running won't have some benefit on that as well if we change the course of it. But you need to know what that is and you need to know the outcomes of that as well. I mean, if this is left untreated at this stage and this is going to result in more vision loss, then that's not my that's not what I want as a practitioner. Yeah. You know? And that's why it's an integrative service. We're not saying this is better than the allopathic treatment, we're saying let's do it together. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's always a place for that sort of intervention. You know, you will often hear me say, if I get run over, do not give me herbs. You know, it, it's you need to put the right treatment in for the right situation and to be okay with that. Um, and for this type of therapy, it's knowing the outcomes, it's knowing the pathology and where the pathology can sequelae. So, you know, if, for example, in retinitis pigmentosa, there's a high risk of it moving into a macular edema at certain stages of its progression. So you need to know the signs and symptoms of that. Yeah. With macular degeneration, when it goes from a dry to a wet, which obviously the wet is not where you want your macular degeneration to go, mm. you need to know what the signs and symptoms of that are. And it's not just about being in that clinical setting. It's also in the fact that these patients are then in the place where they, you know, put you as their practitioner. And so you'll often be contacted for them, and, and rightly or wrongly, as a first point of call for these changes. So for me, it's, you know, it's the saying, you need to contact your optometrist or your ophthalmologist now and get that assessed. Yeah. And then we'll work with them. So is that is that how you handle, you know, when things go wrong? Because what very often happens with naturopathic practitioners is something goes wrong that may be um, pathonomic, but the natural medicine is blamed for that. So do you do you sort of rescue this and say, look, then no, that's part of the progression of the disease or this is highly known and, and you know, not to say that we expected that, but say, look, this is something that can happen, so this is what you do. How do you find yeah. your patients respond to, you know, in their minds they started a natural medicine and then, then the adverse effect happened? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is always <laughs> there's always that, you know, that this did that, mm. um, you know. But again, as for us in our security is knowing, again, that that's the progression of it. And certainly the interventions that we are performing um, really shouldn't be having that sort of negative effect. In fact, it's very rare that that happens. It tends to be more when the patients go home and, and again, like you're saying, pathonomic, it's part of that progression of that disorder. It's probably not fantastic that it's happened in that close time frame for that patient to be in your clinic. Yeah. But I think the management of how you manage that as well is about your professionalism um, and your integrity as a practitioner. You know, so certainly I'm... I'm not going to take blame if it's not associated with it, but I'm going to help that person make sure they retain their vision. Mm. Um, and with patients, a lot of them are aware because these are quite big degenerative eye disorders and they've come to us as almost a last resort that many of them have been through the things right. like this before yeah. or are well aware about what happens with the disease process, you know, and and it's not just being aware that the end point is blindness. It's about how the blindness occurs along the way. So I guess they're coming from a point of education in that sense, which you don't always have in every specialty, which is quite fantastic. So if somebody had an eye complaint or if a, indeed if a practitioner listening had a patient with an eye complaint, how can they get in contact with you and um, put them into the program? So we do have a website, which is visionacupuncture.com. Mm-hmm. So you can go on there and have a read about the service. Um, there's certainly a contact page where you can send an email off and someone will get in contact with you and talk about the suitability for the service. Um, so that's probably the best point of touching base with us. 
Um, and you can read on there about what we do. And there's certainly links on there as well to Andy Rosenfarb in the US and um, his books. He's written some wonderful books um, for patients of these disorders and talking about how integrative health fits into that model. Hmm. So you can certainly have a look at that as well. And is anybody doing any research on this sort of program? Um well, the program, not so much. There's certainly a lot of research going on is, um, on the acupuncture side of it. I know I mentioned Andy Rosenthal. He's, I believe, at the point of writing up their next. They've done a pilot study and they're at, they've just gone through another um, research with a larger group. Yep. So at the point of writing that up. So we don't know the results of that yet, but um, we hear that they are looking to be promising. Oh, so that side of it is certainly gaining it. and. There is, um, again, a lot of rat models with electroacupuncture, et cetera, that also look at that. So that can be looked at. And what we're hoping to do um, within our clinic in Australia is we are looking at how we can pull this into research because it certainly yeah. needs to be there. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what happens when we put it into research is the complexity of the integration has to be minimised a little bit so you know you can't necessarily go on treating a gut etc etc it needs to be this is one intervention that I'm testing on this arm so it yeah. would be something like astaxanthin and then astaxanthin and acupuncture and then astaxanthin you know or acupuncture by itself and then a control group or whatever so it, it we're hoping to take it there um, it's not quite there at the moment so stay tuned and certainly what we are do in the process of doing now is writing up some case studies and, and ah, putting brilliant. them out there because I think that's a really important part for yeah. people just to gain access to what we've been doing in that sense and, and how they could adopt some of that in their practice. Wowee. I, just, this is so well done. And I've got to say, this is groundbreaking. It really is groundbreaking because there's been nothing that's really incorporated a truly holistic approach and indeed an integrative approach with with you know, allop allopathic medicine approaches as well. I, I think this is really well done. Thank you. <laughs> <I hope so. laughs> it's certainly not the specialty I saw myself in, but now that I'm no. here... I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing field and, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't learn something new, um, you know, and it's just the eye in itself and how complex that is and then to integrate that into the body. Yeah. It's yeah, a joy. <laughs> That's well done. I've got to say, more. I love the way that you... I've always really applauded your clinical approach, but your, your remembering, if you like, of the philosophy of that philosophy of natural medicine and your integration of both you know for the better for the betterment of your patients that's it's one of the things that I've really held you in high esteem about and now I've got I've really got to congratulate you and your students indeed because of your new position I love the fact that you're doing objective measurements to so that you can prove that the results aren't just because you thought it was happening it's really because it's happening and that again lends to that evidence for you know hopefully further research down the track well done Thank you very much and thanks for having me today. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.